The following message was recorded Wednesday, January 3, 2024. John Michael shares on the journey of the Magi, who came to visit the young child Jesus. We then enter into our January 2024 communion service. And now, here's John Michael. All right, well, welcome to Wednesday, specifically Communion Wednesday. It's our first Wednesday of the year and our first communion message of the year. So I'm glad to be up here. Um, when I do get the privilege of being up here, I'd like to have my time when it's about communion to make a message that deals with communion. That's a help for me. When I'm sitting out there, if somebody's doing a communion message, that always kind of helps me a little bit prepare before I get in here, but then a little extra prepare. So, But tonight I'm going to do a couple, two things, actually. Um, I had something in the bag already um, about the Feast of the Three Kings. And not Three Kings, we're going to blow up most of that today. Um, Pastor Ritt did an outstanding job Christmas Eve morning taking care of where was Jesus born and covered a lot of those things. But So I'll fill in some of the blanks. On, uh, I'll double up on some of the stuff that he did, but I'll fill in some blanks, things, a couple of things I'm sure you didn't know. So we'll do that, and then I'm just going to fail over into a short communion message, almost like a devotional. And then we'll um, commune together. You ready? Heavenly Father, just um, as we just sang, Lord, quiet my mind, Lord. As Darren just said, uh, the work's done. Uh, whatever we've got, we've got. So, uh, Holy Spirit, I'm just asking you to uh, calm my heart and my mind. Let me deliver what I've uh, had on my heart. And may it touch some folks, Lord. I'm like, a little excited about a couple of points, Lord. So just, just be with us, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of standing before my brothers and sisters, opening the word, Lord. In your great and holy name, amen. All right. Can we fix the light there? and darken that a little bit? Thank you. All right. So who were these guys? Uh, what I'd like to do is explain who they were where they come from, and why. In doing so, we'll be visiting some biblical passages and some very inter interesting extra-biblical passages uh, that I hope will fill some gaps. Um, I don't wish to imply that uh, the Bible has gaps at all. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine and reproof for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Second Timothy. The Bible simply does not contain anything that is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But history runs parallel to Scripture perfectly and allows us to glimpse into cultures that are not even covered in Scripture. So, we sing about them, we tell stories about them, our manger scenes include them. Unfortunately, most of our traditions are wrong. This is cumbersome up here like this. Uh, so here's a few examples that do not add up to true historical account at all. Uh, by the 3rd century, they were viewed as kings. By the 6th century, they were names Viseria, Malachor, and Gethaspa. Some even associated them with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, three sons of Noah, thus Asia, Africa, and Europe. The 14th century Armenian tradition identifies them, Balthasar, king of Arabia, Malachor, king of Persia, and Gaspar, king of India. So line four there, that's what most of our manger scenes depict. So you might have noticed that this year we didn't have in our manger scene, there were no three kings. Where we normally had them, we uh, figured if they didn't get to the manger scene, there's no sense displaying it as such, correct? All right. So Eastern and Western Orthodox religions celebrate the Feast of the Three Kings 12 days after Christmas, 
So Saturday on their calendar is the Feast of the Three Kings. The Catholic Church calls this the Feast of the Epiphany from the Greek word epiphania, meaning revelation. Uh, in Spain, as well as other Spanish-speaking countries, uh, tradition had always been observed Christmas Day as a solemn religious occasion, reserving three kings' days for, or Dea de la Reyes, is that correct? Close enough? <laughs> for parting and exchanging gifts. This is kind of interesting. Uh, when Michelle and I were sailing, we spent probably a month down there in the December time frame, late December, and we would go ashore and you know those little plastic manger scenes you have out in the yard, you know, it's Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and they, you put an extension cord on them and they light up, they're about yay tall. Well, think of that with three kings instead of the, the manger scenes. And they all have flat roofs down there, so they're all up on their roofs or their porticos, and three kings are the big deal down there. And it's, it's crazy. And I had to stop and think about it a couple of times because I said, well, maybe they've got it right. Maybe um, Christmas is the, uh, observed as a solemn religious occasion, and then they're just going to fail over into the Three Kings Day and do the, the parting and exchanging of the gifts. That would be true, except for I finally realized that, especially that one in the upper left, they basically use these three kings just like Santa Claus. I mean, basically, they dress them up like Santa Claus, they put them out there, the kids climb up on their laps and tell them what they want for, for their gifts. Pretty crazy. And believe it or not, all three of those images are in this country. <laughs> in this, yes. That is not anything in, a, in like Puerto Rico or anywhere else. So the, the deal is they give you, uh, instead of coming down the chimney, he basically comes in somehow and puts your gifts in your shoes. So I guess you have stinky, stinky gifts in the morning. And this, too, um, these three, El Puente is in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, El Barrio is Manhattan, Upper East Side. And, of course, you recognize Walmart wishes you a happy day of kings in the lower right, telling you that you can get a Three Kings gift card. So, again, I, I think uh, Spanish or Latin countries as well as us have this all, whole thing all jazzed up, and it's all basically just nonsense. I'll say, but why are there three kings? The number of kings, obviously, is the number of major, essentially driven by the number of gifts that are in Scripture. I should have done it a different way. Gold speaks of his kingship. Frankincense has a spice used as priestly duties, and myrrh was an embalming ointment signifying his death. Myrrh gum is a sap-like resin produced by a thorny shrub in the Camphora gen genus. I don't know if you remember, do you know what camphor smells like? Like camphor phenic? Okay, that's, they both smell like that, which includes frankincense. When the bark of the tree is cut, the resin escapes in tears or small beads, which hardens quickly and became glossy and amber-colored with age. I actually have some of each, but it's still packed away, and I have no idea what box it's in. <laughs> so, using our... Maybe for next year. Maybe for next year. If I find it, I'll bring it anyway, because it's kind of interesting. So using history as our guide via biblical and extra-biblical writings, we endeavored to find out who they were, where they came from, and why. One idea to jettison is the idea that they were only three wise men. We see that as we move forward that there were indeed three, 
but almost certainly way more than three. Again, three is driven by the number of gifts. We use the number of three and cast our figurines and our songs as such due to the fact that there were three gifts. Those gifts were mentioned in Matthew 2.11, if you're looking, taking notes. Interesting, myrrh is mentioned 16 times in Scripture, 13 in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, and seven times of that is listed in the Song of Solomon. Very interesting to look through some of those and find out why they're being mentioned there. Uh, extra info there, gold is mentioned 393 times. We know, can understand why gold would be mentioned. And frankincense, 17 times. So I trolled a few of those, and here's an interesting one. Uh, interested in, it's in Revelation 18.13. Uh, I'll leave the context up to you. Probably an interesting study to catch some of the particulars across all three of those gifts. That was uh, Revelation 18.13. So to discover who they, need, who they were, we need to go back in time and look at Daniel. So let's go ahead and set the stage. I'm way off. There we go. So, so let's turn to the book of Daniel before we get there. Uh, the, the verse listed there is Daniel 1, 17 through 21. No, that's not what I want to do. Look at Daniel 1. Daniel 1. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them into before Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in the realm. And thus Daniel continued until, his first, continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Right. Daniel was listed as having extraordinary wisdom and knowledge ten times above those in the court of the king. Drop down to Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled that his sleep left him. So troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to go to, the, to call the magicians, astrologers, and sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Now Chaldeans can imply a territory in lower Mesopotamia, bordering on the Persian Gulf, inhabitants of Chaldea, living in the lower Euphrates on the Tigris River, or, as I believe is here, those persons considered to be the wisest in the land, depending on how it is used. So setting the stage here, Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream and wants his wise men to interpret it. But as he does not trust these guys to do anything more than consult some books they pull off the shelf and feed him something they think he wants to hear. Let's look at chapter 2, 12, and 13. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So to turn to our slide reference, uh, Daniel 2, 46 and 48. 
So then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. I'm sorry. So Daniel not only tells him what the dream was, he also interprets the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed, he saves the life of the previous condemned men. And then going to our reference 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator all, over all the wise men of Babylon. So thus far we have Daniel's been in Babylon since he was around 14. He has interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar on several occasions. He's been awarded a position in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. We have the fiery furnace story and the lion's den event, both concocted by wise men. Let's go to Daniel 6. One through three, under, uh, under Darius, Daniel is made chief over all the wise men and has given the, nabel, the title Rabmag. Rabmog is actually the connect, correct pronunciation. Chief of the Magi, Rabmog. So and that's uh, Strong's H7248, a soothsayer, if you want to look up what that, what that word's all about. Contextually, we now have the destruction of Babylon and Darius the Mede is in power. Darius had great respect for Daniel. Daniel is now officially over the Magi or the Rabmog. Rabmog is a Hebrew word that means soothsayer. The Magi were a hereditary sect. These men were highly intelligent. They were highly educated. They knew math, astrology. They had profound and extraordinary religious knowledge. They were the who's who of the Medo-Persian Empire. So Darius the Great established them over the state religion of Persia after some magi who had been attached to the Median court proved to be experts in the interpretation of dreams. It was this dual capacity whereby civil and political council was invested or tied to religious authority, and the magi became the supreme priestly caste of the Persian Empire. Under Darius, the magi became to really coalesce their power. Again, this is a hereditary sect, and having Daniel, a Jew, set over them was really not well received. They didn't like that. For centuries, it had been a hereditary sect. Now you get this Jewish guy comes in, and he's the top dog. So this dual role of both civil and political religious authority is how we ended up with our word magistrate, as the Magi were now responsible for selecting the appointed king or appointing the king. The word Magi is a plural of a Latin word magus, borrowed from the Greek magos. Magi is entomological root of two words in our language, magistrate and magic. All right, so now we have a plot.
The Magi knew that the only way to trap Daniel was to use his unfaltering relationship with God. So the Magi went to Darius saying, King Darius, live forever. Please establish a decree that says any man who petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. Darius did so, and we know the rest, as Daniel was caught praying and thrown to the lion's den and preserved by God. Let's go to Daniel 6.10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was assigned, was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his window open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Daniel's habit of praying was an example of civil disobedience. This is important as Daniel never denied his God and his life probably had a positive effect on many Medes and Persians throughout his life, such that many would certainly have believed in his God. Daniel's in his 80s here and has been among these people since he was a young man in Babylon. It was not Daniel's beliefs that got him into trouble. It was his praying. They These men grew up around Daniel, a secret sect of believers within the Magi who apparently entrusted in a messianic messianic vision to be announced in due time by a star and its fulfillment. As a student of scripture, Daniel would have imparted to them all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus, Jesus coming, specifically Micah 5.2. A side note, if you look at uh, verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 8. I'm sorry, (laughs) chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 8. Sorry about that. There's a note there. So, now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So, if that sounds familiar, that's the same type of law that was enacted with unchangeableness in the Medo-Persian law that we saw in Esther. Right? Okay. Just a little side note there. So, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And as to the star... Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. With these verses in mind, the Magi would have been eager to find the king. So that's the who. Now we'll look at the when. And that's all. And that all seems like a lot of extraneous information. But I wanted to firmly establish who these guys were. They weren't just three guys who saw a star and came in from the east. So let's go to Matthew 2.11 real quick. I tell you to go to a verses even though the verse is up there. For me, there's something really extraordinary about actually reading it out of my Bible. 
I don't know how many times I've looked at a Bible. Somebody says a Bible verse. says, go there and look at it. And there'll be a note in my Bible that takes me out to left field relative to where the message is, but it's profound for the remainder of the day or weeks to come. It just has happened before. So that's just the way that God, Holy Spirit works. So anyway... So that's the who. And now when we look at the when, Matthew 2.11, and when they had come into the house, they saw a young child with his mother, with, his, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this is an area that we're incredibly uh, familiar with. But rather than read it like we just did a hundred times, let's look at it a bit more critically. So, okay, so they came to the house not a manger, and they saw a young child, not a baby. So look at the translations here. Matthew repeatedly refers to Jesus as the child. He uses the Greek word paideon, which, which was used by definition for a child after infancy. In contrast, Luke says the shepherds found Mary and the baby in the manger. Luke uses the word brepos, meaning infant or newborn. So that defines the when. And honestly, none of this is an area of critical scholarly debate. And for me, it's sad that our holiday traditions were established centuries ago such that they are now so firmly entrenched in a society that appropriates that which is being fed to them. You, thank you for my family, stand among the few who are willing, eager, and open to unraveling scripture. Now we need to look at the where. Where do these guys come from? So thus, thus far, we have a group of really smart men who have been quietly working their trade in the background throughout a huge portion of the Old Testament. This hereditary sect of men held on to a prophecy for over 500 years until the time of birth, birth Jesus' birth, and it was fulfilled, fulfilling that prophecy. You'll find the word rabmag twice in, Jer- in uh, Scripture, in Jeremiah. If you're taking notes, Jeremiah 39.3. And 39.13. All right, if we look at where they came from, the manner in which they traveled, we'll see it's easy to accept a general time frame as being that Jesus might well have been over a year old and why they did not make it to the manger. The probable reason as to why Herod chose to kill all the males two years and under was for the margin of error concocted in his sick mind. You can see that a straight path from point A to B would traverse the open Arabian desert, so they would have taken a much longer fertile crescent route along the Euphrates and then southward. The exact journey, the exact path is not known to us. However, you can now see that why there were probably not just three, as a journey this involved would take something akin to a caravan. And actually, it becomes even more compelling as we start to look at some of the politics of the region and why it would probably be something resembling a complete posse of both the Magi, in which there were no doubt more than three, along with support personnel, including armed individuals. Remember, these men were part of the Parthian Empire and would at times have to traverse Roman territory. So excuse this. I was looking for a different map. I could not find what I wanted. But above the black line, there is the Parthian territory, and left of the red line is the Roman territory. In 40 BC, Parthia conquers Judea, 38 years before Jesus was born. Three years later, in 37 BC, Jewish sovereignty is restored, and Jerusalem was fortified with the Jewish garrison. 
Herod now has secured from Caesar Augustus the title of King of the Jews. However, it took three years, including five months siege of the, of the city by Roman troops before he was able to occupy his own capital city. Herod had thus gained the throne of a rebellious buffer state, which was situated between two mighty contending armies. At the time, he was, his own subjects might conspire in bringing the Parthians to their Adian. So you can imagine the sudden appearance of the Magi, probably traveling in force with adequately armed cavalry escort to ensure their safety into Roman territory. This would alarm Herod and the populace of Jerusalem. No one wanted uh, No one on either side wanted an uprising. Go to Matthew 2, 1 through 3. Chapter 2, 1 and 3. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there, came a wise men from the, there became wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Again, let's not read it like we normally do. Let's look at what's being conveyed. So verse 2 where is he that is born king of the Jews? This is a real slap in the face to Herod as he was appointed by Rome. Imagine these guys roll into town and ask you the question like that. Uh, all right, look, Herod, you're the appointed king, but we want to see the one that was born the king. They're hip, they're smart, they're probably well-dressed, they have their backs, and they challenge your very role of king. Not only was Herod troubled, <clears throat> we see that all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. They for sure did not want a border skirmish, but more interestingly, have a look at this. In 63 BC, the Magi made a presentation to the Roman Senate, wherein they described a celestial event indicating that a new ruler had been born. Evidently regretting the news, the Senate at that time responded by ordering the death of all baby boys in the candidate age range. That sound familiar? It turns out that when Herod ordered the slaughter of children in Bethlehem 60 years later, he may have been following a sort of Roman precedent. The precedent may be one reason Jerusalem was troubled at the news that Magi brought. Besides the sheer presence of what was probably a fairly impressive entourage, notice that the Magi were reacting to a celestial event there as well. Fortunately, nothing came of it as recounted in the book of a, uh, the life of Caesar's. Somebody wrote, I forget the guy's name, um, Divus Augustus. Uh, recounting the report of Julius Marathus, as some of their wives were pregnant at the time of the prediction, senators conspired to ensure that the Senate decree was not recorded into the treasury. Each perhaps hoped that their child might be the ruler to come. The decree was apparently not implemented widely, if at all even though that decree was not enacted at the time, it most certainly was this time in Scripture, reminds us in 2.16. And then when Herod saw he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he set forth and put death all the male ch children who were, in born, who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, 
according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So we covered the who, the where, the why. We saw the Magi are very real people who had significant part to play across centuries of prophetic scripture, where from the Perth, Parthian Empire as highly learned men, why? To unwittingly fulfill prophetic scripture and to worship the Lord. So what we've learned, we learned that some of our traditions as to the Magi are wrong. There were more than three. They did not arrive at the manger ever. And we know from whence they came. Interestingly enough, the Magi were bringing their gifts to the gift. Jesus is the real gift. For unto us a son is given. That's one part of it. And unto us a child is born. That's the manifestation of the gift. As Jesus the infant became a man, he furthered that gift by overcoming the sin of the world, by dying on the cross, and then overcoming death to give us the gift of eternal life. And tonight we're going to remember that gift as we commune with him through an or the ordinance of communion. So give me a second. That's part one of what I want to do. Now I want to turn our hearts and minds to that ordinance, to communion. Communion. We do it monthly, but what is the event's defined purpose? And how about some of the words and phrases or actions we use when we talk about it? I thought it would be good to walk around some of that. Realize that in the setting when communion was instituted, Jesus and the 11 were celebrating the most sacred of all days for the nation. Passover was being enacted. But a greater deliverance was being wrought, a very different deliverance. Not Moses, but greater than Moses. So we now see two covenants yielding very different relationships. The old covenant saw God give his law to sinners. The new covenant sees God give his son for sinners. We do communion monthly, but what is its defined purpose? It restores us. This restoration affords us the opportunity to resolve our, for ourselves the relationship with God by naming our sins privately to God, thereby avoiding judgment. It offers us a remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. No one wants to be forgotten. So we do this, fostering a remembrance of the saving work of Christ performed and completed for all at the cross. This is a memorial of one person, the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not entirely confident I wouldn't fall to forgetting about this ordinance if we didn't do it monthly, just being honest. But I don't want to ever forget Realized Jesus cared little for rights that were driven or meted out by the Pharisees. Jesus did, however, establish two ordinances for us. Baptism and communion. Baptism, which is done once in a believer's life, and communion, which is done as often as established by a fellowship of believers, i.e. a church body or as a family. 
Baptism is an initiation of sorts where communion is a commemoration. Communion of the Lord's Supper is a commemoration and emblematic of the most painful, the most sorrowful act in human history. His death is our life, our salvation, and our acceptance before God. Thanksgiving, that word, Eucharisteo, that's the Greek word we use at communion, which means to give thanks. And right there in the middle of spelling of that word is charis, which means grace or kindness. But also, it holds its derivative of that word, the Greek word kara, meaning joy. It's so wonderful to see these types of hidden words or meanings with such profound symbolism. Charis, joy, right there in the middle. Fellowship. Communion provides fellowship for believers. We come together as members of God's family in celebrating the Lord's Supper right here in this room. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, Paul comments in a fairly stern reprimand is applied to the Corinthian church communion celebration as they come together. The words or phrase, when you come together, is used five times. So when we come together, as this is a family table. This is not a fast food window. We need that sit down around the table, point, and have fellowship. As noted, as long as we're talking about 1 Corinthians 11, almost universally, New Testament scholars agree, 1 Corinthians was written before the synoptics. So the call to do this in remembrance of me, indeed, all of Jesus' words around his ordinance, is divine revelation of Jesus' words to Paul. That's extraordinary. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'd see that same verbiage Jesus uses if you read the, synopt- if you'd read the synoptics. We do this corporately. That's how we express it. But tonight, I'm preferring to use the word family, as we are redeemed people. Honestly, I'm astonished that I'm even here. I've been redeemed. His amazing grace taking me from the cesspool of my life to a place of forgiveness, eternal forgiveness, yet still a sinner. What great mercy. We have not earned the right to come to the table, but we are invited graciously by God to come because of what he has done for us through his son, Jesus. I think of Joseph when he invited his brothers to come to the table with, for him, with him, redeeming them back as family, showing grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Exodus 12, 26 says, what do you mean by this service? The answer is Exodus 13, 8. This is done because of what the Lord did for me. He brought me out. He brought us out of the wilderness. It's his spiritual death for our spiritual life. Contextually, those two verses are Passover and dedication of the firstborn. However, as it applies to this ordinance, the words ring too. What do you mean by this service? This is done because of what the Lord did for me, for you. How about the elements? I believe I've said this every time I've stood here. They cost us almost nothing, but cost God everything. 
Would it mean any more to you if it cost us $1,000 to do this? The bread, unleavened to indicate the absence of sin, he broke it. Yes, he was broken. Jesus was broken beyond human comprehension. The cup, scripture says he took the cup. You realize what that implies? He took the cup. Not just the function of consuming it ceremoniously, but as a symbol of what he was submitting to in the torturous death for my salvation, your salvation. There was absolute submission and willingness in his heart by his part. It cost Jesus untold agony to redeem me from the pit of hell. I try to purpose myself to recall the immeasurable, incalculable agony of the pain, the beatings, and the brutal, barbaric affixing of a human to a cross. I have a document by a physician laying out the physiology of what his body went through. It's unbelievable. How can anyone who takes a moment to consider all this and then come here without an accounting of one's sins. No one else can look at me and see that I'm unworthy, but I know me, and you know you. We need to cry out as David did, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's one of those prayers, you better be ready for the answer if you're going to pray that have God search you? Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Peter, do you love me? John Michael, do you love me? I do, Jesus. I do despite my shortcomings, my faults, my wanderings, my forgetfulness, my coldness. The only thing I'm perfect in is my weakness. Job 25, 6. How much less a man is a maggot? In my early relationship with Pastor Ritt, we're sitting outside in the pavilion one morning, and he looked me straight in the face after I mentioned that verse, and he said, Joe Michael, you're worse than a maggot. A maggot doesn't know the difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to... Uh, just be here with us this, you know, this evening, Lord, as we take communion, Lord. We stop and think about why we're here. Breaking of the bread, the drinking of the cup, all that took place afterwards. You died, buried, overcame death three days later so that I could stand here and convey the very thought. what wretched people we are, Lord Jesus. The holidays are over. We get back to our seemingly normal lives. Strengthen us, Lord, for the days to come. So it certainly will be spiraling down further and farther and farther. But we must be able to stand on the two feet. The two feet that you have given us put us back on the rock, Lord. So, Lord Jesus, just be with us tonight, Lord. And if there's anybody here, Lord, who doesn't know you as a personal Savior, Lord, that you would give them that opportunity tonight, Lord, 
to reach out to any one of us, Lord, that can help show them the way, Lord. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. So we surrender to you, Lord Jesus, in your great and holy name. Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.